0: This week on Dig Me Out, with your hosts Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi,
1: three hundred J. Woo, we've done it. Amazing. It is amazing. I don't know how we've been able to pull it off, staying on the same schedule for once a week for the last
0: Well, that's kind of our personality. That that part doesn't surprise me. It's true. I guess I just never thought when well, we started this that we get I just didn't hadn't thought it through that far. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait, you if know. we keep going we're gonna get to a significant number. I don't know. When we hit a thousand, we'll be like, I never thought we'd make a thousand now that we're living in space.
0: <laughs> we're one of the first million on Mars.
1: Now that uh, Elon Musk has built us our own podcasting studio on Mars <laughs> in order to attract podcasters to the Martian landscape,
0: we have know, to educate uh, Martians about uh, night music.
1: Huh.
0: <laughs> He's going to pick one podcast from every uh Decade of music to explain to the new citizens Quartro, our culture,
1: Quattro and your people. We need to explain podcasting. What was the name <laughs> of the alien and in? in uh, it's not the name of the alien in uh, Total Recall. What's the name of that little guy that pops out of the guy's chest and talks? Remember that? <clears throat> no. <laughs> okay. Sorry, we're off track already. Uh, 300th episode. It's a big one for us. We've joked around that if we ever got to the end, we were going to do dig me out the album as the last episode clearly we're not doing that what we're yep. doing is talking about dig me out the book so we got around that
0: <laughs> crafty we're so crafty. what are we going to do for like 500 well, we've already done the book
1: that's a good question um we'll do dig me out the stage play or dig me out the musical <laughs> once that's been because i figure this book will be turned into a musical by the time we hit that episode so mm-hmm. then we'll, we'll talk to the cast of uh dig me out on broadway uh i don't know we have to we're gonna have to come up with something good i mean for 200 we did we did use your illusion one and two mm-hmm. so that was a big one i mean i guess we'd have to go with maybe like melancholy i can't believe
0: that 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 was a hundred episodes ago it was that feels like yesterday
1: we have to do like melancholy wow. and the infinite sadness
0: or yeah yeah uh, you know, we'll something, hit all something big. we need to hit uh i saw i, I know when we started this podcast and, and we had a uh either clear or slightly obscured uh vision of or i guess not transparent vision of uh we were going to try to avoid all the big ones right. <clears throat> but i saw a list of Recently, I can't remember who put it out, uh, but it was like the top 10 grunge records or top 10 records of the 90s. And I think as long as we avoid those, I think everything else should be fair game. So true. Melancholy is not on that list. So no. I think we're OK.
1: So we do have a contest that's currently going on. This episode is coming out where or, or you have received it via your iTunes download or whatever streaming service that you use on the morning of Tuesday, October 11th. Uh, This thing goes live at 1 a.m. Eastern time in the United States. And at midnight tonight, midnight Eastern time, we are cutting off the Patreon subscriber deadline. Anybody who is a subscriber before that deadline of midnight is eligible to win Dig Me Out the book that we both read our our thumbs have paged through this book it is Ugh. uh
0: dig me out do you wash your home. hands first
1: yes <laughs> I, I actually wore gloves when i read it so that uh, okay oj <laughs> i mean if i read it
0: i'm not y- saying were... that
1: i did read it but if well, you i wore... did read it i would have worn gloves you wear a glove on
0: your left hand all the time anyway
1: i do in honor of michael Um, Sequence. Exactly. People at my office are very confused by it, but I've tried (laughs) to explain more than a few times. So, yeah, you're going to take home by being a subscriber. We're going to pick the following day, which should be Wednesday. We're going to pick one person from our subscriber list to receive that book. I already have it packaged in a mailer, a bubble mailer, which will go out the day after the winner is selected. You will have that book in your possession. And you can read it. Now, the book was written by a uh, 33 and a third author, as well as a uh, uh, distinguished professor who you will get to know in our conversation, Jovanna Babovich. Uh, she joined us via the Skype, and we had a real interesting conversation with her. It was a couple weeks back. We actually recorded this a little bit earlier than we normally record our episodes, but um, we were so excited. To uh, you know, do this episode. We we kind of did it ahead of time to make sure we didn't ha- have one of our classic. We got it scheduled, and then something happened, and we got delayed, and we didn't want to miss this episode, so we 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 recorded it back about a month ago. So luckily, there was no important um, you know uh, events that happened in between that uh, might have caused our conversation to uh, seem antiquated. I think we recorded this back when um, Jeb Bush was going to be the Republican nominee so we might have talked about what a jeb bush presidency was going to look like uh as we often do as we often do so maybe that might that might give it away that we recorded it early i don't know so that's that we want to thank all of our subscribers at patreon we want to thank everybody in the first 300 who has donated to our show to request a review that has been a huge huge part of keeping us on the air that we have not had to pay our bills uh, well, we, no, let me take that back. Uh, that's a very Donald Trump thing to say. We have paid our bills. However, we have been able to do... We've been able to stay in the black, as they say in accounting terms, and not dip, not to go into the negative the last couple of years. And that has been huge for us. Um, we've been able to do a little bit of advertising, and we've been able to do things like give away the failure, the Heart is a Monster double album earlier this year, giving away the book. We're going to have more giveaways, as uh, we proceed through our uh, march towards episodes four, five, six, seven hundred, whatever. So thanks to everybody who has been a listener, who has been a subscriber, who has been uh, a commenter. We appreciate it. And uh, Jay, you got anything to say?
0: Just thank you very much. Um, Yeah, the Patreon thing has been great. We've built momentum over time with that, and uh, every episode we post up, it costs more and more to keep that that archive alive so that is a big part of that plus we kind of I don't know if you edited it out but we touched on it in this interview about you know what is our uh, historical where does this podcast set, what role does it play mm-hmm. um, it's becoming a bit of an oral history of the 90s right despite the fact that we never intended it to be that but as we keep going we'd like to do more and more stuff we'd like to be able to potentially pay other people to to do stuff for us um create great content so the Patreon page is a big part of that So
1: yep. thank you Alright, let's get to the interview with Giovanna talk some Dig Me Out on Dig Me Out Well, thank you for, uh, for coming on your uh, Wednesday evening And uh, spending some time talking about the uh, Book.
2: Pleasure is
1: mine. So this is actually this is for our 300th episode, which is not right away. That's like in a couple episodes because we're on like 290. Yeah, 292.
2: About, I noticed. 292.
1: Right? Yeah, I just finished editing 293 for next week. We're usually a couple episodes ahead because it takes me a little while to edit, add music, and that kind of stuff. So this will probably go up sometime in September. I don't know. Cool. I haven't counted out the weeks or whatever. Um, but uh, yes yeah, so this, well, this is a guys.
2: I mean, well, That's thanks. a big milestone. That's really exciting. That's I mean for a podcast that's huge. So it's I mean that's like you've made it, right?
1: I, well, made <laughs> well it. <laughs> we've we've to 300. Leave. Yeah.
2: That's I think I think that's pretty cool. I mean it's sort of like the um, you know you you win your gold prize, you well, no wait. Bronze to to silver to gold this yes. is like you know you're getting up there it's pretty yeah.
1: cool we are getting up there i don't I, jay i didn't know what to get you for our anniversary our <laughs> 300th um it ran out well, at that point Tim and i <laughs>
0: might not be good at things but we sure are consistent yeah <laughs> we will show up every week
2: that's cool guys yeah so
0: our employers love us
2: <laughs> let me ask you this though i mean oh, you know, I know the podcast is named after the the Slater-Kinney album, but mm-hmm. what was the inspiration way back in the day? I mean, the, is this something that you've discussed in the past? Or I guess I've, I would love to know the answer, even if you have discussed it in the past.
1: Oh, you mean why we picked that name? Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, but I believe that I came up with the name, right? You did. So okay.
0: Take it away. Take it away.
1: So I was trying to figure out, I wanted to use either a, a song title or a album title from mm-hmm. the nineties that seemed to evoke, like going back into your record collection and pull something out. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying to figure out like, okay, what's, you know, I, could, I was going through song titles. I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And I was probably in the S's and I went, Oh, sh- dig me out. Like, that's <laughs> it. And I happen to actually really like the song and the album. So that's like, perfect. Perfect.
2: Yeah, it's perfect. I like that. No, and it works. eh? I mean, the design, the logo you have works, right? And this is the 90s. We're digging up the 90s again, which is also very, 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 very well matched.
1: I I got the name Jay Does All the Graphic Design. That's his specialty. Cool. Cool. I like that. uh, It's a team effort.
0: Tim came with with the name and uh, it made so much sense. We didn't even have a conversation. It was like, yes, that's the name. Let's, wow. <laughs> when do we start?
2: <laughs> wow, yeah. that's no, no, that's that, that's great. The sort of the genesis of the of the podcast has a good story and sounds like you guys were on the same page, which always helps, you know, get things off the ground. And sounds like keep it off the ground too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, well we were f- doing we were doing this anyway, so yeah. we figured we might as well just turn the mic on. Yeah, we were <laughs> we were so doing it in his
1: yeah. uh, in his um, upstairs <laughs> spare bedroom, listening to <laughs> records and drinking beer on Sunday evenings, and we we're like wait, we should just record this. This is a show. <laughs> yeah. So that's how it started out. It started out with us both in the same city and then Jay moved to Texas. So that's it took right. away the beer in the same room aspect of the show. But uh, <laughs> That's a bummer. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the book. And, and we're talking about, for the, the 300th episode, the name of the show, which is Dig Me Out, and, and the album that it was named after, which is uh, Slater Kenny's. Dig me out. I didn't properly introduce you. This is Jovanna uh, Babovich. Yes. Yes, I got it right this time. Joining us from... Mini- St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul, which we just... Uh, well, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give away in the show, but I'm just mm. saying there's a future episode that's going to involve St. Paul and, Ooh. and Minneapolis and that the, the area, but uh, you'll have to tune in to a future episode for that. Actually, this is the 300th episode, so that episode might have already taken place. Wow, this <laughs> is getting very Inception here. I'm not sure not sure when that's going to happen. So it'll just have or haven't. We'll see. A
2: anticlimactic, maybe, when... when right. Actually, I'm
1: yeah. teasing something that happened, oh, like, three weeks you. ago. <laughs> that's how professional I am.
0: I hope that episode was good. It was a great
1: episode, Jay. I'm glad we did it. So anyway... <laughs> Can you give us a little bit about your background and and what you do?
2: Yeah, so by training, I am a historian. I'm a historian of modern Europe. Um, I study uh, popular culture. I study uh, gender. I study feminism. Uh, And most of all, I study entertainment. Uh, So for me, uh, writing about Slater-Kinney in the late 90s was actually a really interesting jump uh, from studying European pop culture um, in the early 20th century. Um, and what I wanted to do with this book when I started researching Slater-Kinney is I wanted to transport some of the ideas I'd worked on in the past uh, and ask other questions um, about gender, for example, about feminism, for example, about pop culture, I mean, even to some extent about cities, right? I mean, two of the chapters in this book, uh, are about cities. One is about Olympia in a way, one is about Seattle in a way. Uh, so I wanted to transport the themes I work with as a historian, uh, into a side project and actually ended up being really fruitful and really exciting for me. Um, and actually I think because I'm a historian, and I'll tell you guys a little bit more about that later, the book is written a bit the way it is, right? So there's a mm-hmm. lot of framing, there's a lot of context, and there's a lot of trying to make sense of things that happened in the past that we haven't necessarily made sense with yet. And I'm not sure in 2016 we can, right? Maybe in 50 years from now, we'll be telling a different story about this period. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a historian, I used a lot of archival sources, um, I used a lot of newspaper sources, uh, and I used... Actually, oral history, so interviews, which was new for me for this project, but a lot of fun to do.
1: So before you got into reading the book, had you read previous 33 and a third entries?
2: I had, actually. Um, I had read and loved uh, Cyrus Patel's Some Girls, which actually does something similar to what I'm trying to do in my book. Uh, What... What Some Girls does is it traces sort of really interesting, really fantastic uh, dual analysis of race and class in 1970s New York, and then puts Rolling Stones in that context, which I thought was really, really interesting. It really helped me get Rolling Stones a lot more. Uh, Or Daphne Carr's Pretty Hate Machine, uh, Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine, I thought was awesome. Uh, she does a really great job of zeroing it on a demographic of fans. Uh, in this case Nine Inch Nails fans that she identifies are from the early 90s. They're mostly male. They're mostly poor. Uh, they're mostly white. Uh, and they actually live in your neck of the woods in the Rust Belt. And so she interviews them. Uh, she does a really cool demographic study and then talks about why this band is important to that particular demographic. Um, and those two books for me were really kind of formative in the way that I imagined m- my book, uh, turning out to be. Uh, and then in terms of style, uh, Matthew Stern's book on, uh, Sonic Youth's Dejan Nation was really cool. But because what he does is he uses words to describe sound, which is really hard to do. It's really, really hard to actually write yeah. about Sound that we hear. Mm-hmm. So he has this awesome opening where he describes this cacophony of urban noise, right? And he says, when you turn on, when you put on this record, right? You turn on your record player. What you hear are trains screeching wheels of cars, people screaming, h- cars honking. This is what <laughs> Sonic Youth sounds like. And I thought that was really cool. That was really inspiring as sort of a technique to put words uh, to. Sound, which, you know, I, I I don't do as much, but nevertheless I was very, very impressed with the way he does it.
0: That's uh probably the hardest part of this podcast, right, Tim? When we when we review records, we have to in a lot of cases explain what they sound like, which yeah, is, is I think challenging. It's all
1: music journalism yeah. is is difficult when you're trying to actually explain sound. It's it's always a a, a difficult thing to not just come up with something that's accurate, but not be repetitive and, yeah. you know, say something that's already been said about something else that is sort of generic. Um, well,
2: right. Avoid being cliche, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. What it, sounds, it sounds angry or it sounds dark. Or mm-hmm. uh, when I was writing this book, I was trying to use the word raw a lot. And a musicologist friend of mine told me that that's sort of like a meaningless way to describe music, right? What does it mean that the guitar sounds raw? It means nothing. But, right. you know, we try to like sort of use words that don't fit or that fit best for us but they don't translate necessarily for others to when they when they try to understand what you mean about sound so i, I mean i get that and this sort of this quote that you mentioned uh that um that you brought up about Writing about uh, music is like dancing about architecture. I mean, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's challenging. I think it can be done, and there's probably people who can do this and who will be doing this in the future, right? This sort of the 33 and a third series is part of the sound study series. Um, there's definitely, like, big goals there to be met, but it's a challenge, that's for sure.
1: So how did you zero in on using uh, this particular album, for what you wanted to write about. Did you have other, were you like circling a couple different albums that you were considering?
2: So picking the album was the hardest part of this whole project, I have to say. I mean, I'm sure you guys have thought about which album you would do. uh, And I thought about it for years. You know, this this is always in the back of my mind. And I've gone through a lot of, a lot of ideas. But then when actually it was the right time, when I actually had a chunk of time that I knew I could devote to the project and I started thinking more seriously about it, All of a sudden, sort of the favorite albums that I thought I would I would want to write on didn't seem as interesting uh, of of actual art pieces to devote a year or two years to actually. So you know, in like sort of the dream world, I would have done like the Pesh mode or the Smiths. But then when I actually started looking at uh, looking at this, I just didn't find enough things I wanted to ask about these particular albums or these particular bands. So for me. The obvious choice of a favorite album simply was not the right choice. For me, the obvious, or rather, for me, the right choice was the one that drove my curiosity. Uh, and so when I started thinking about Slater Kinney, I realized that I lived through the 90s. I did engage with the 90s, but I actually didn't quite understand the 90s. Uh, and so I sort of really started looking a little bit further in what's been published, what are people talking about, and I realized that there was so much there for me to learn, so much there for me to ask. I was I was really curious to uh, to pursue this further. So that's kind of how I zeroed in, uh, and it helped that, you know, the series is a little bit unbalanced. It's not really representative in terms of who is covered. So I really wanted to kind of even the score a little bit, and I wanted to um, examine a female performer, as opposed to sort of the rock canon of Bowie's and Beatles and Radioheads. Um, And, you know, as sort of a pitch for people thinking perhaps about submitting a proposal, um, the series certainly could use an examination of more women, more people of color, more genre diversity, um, and certainly a more diverse cast of writers. So I just sort of want to throw that out there. Uh, The series is great, but could definitely use to diversify. Uh, And for me, that was kind of Part of what I wanted to do, I wanted to write about female performers because I felt that the series could certainly use rock stars who were not necessarily canonical rock stars or thought of as the canonical rock stars. They, of course, are rock stars, but aren't necessarily thought of as such.
1: And we've covered this over time on the podcast, either on individual episodes or or we did a a roundtable discussion in terms of the 90s being a... I hate using the phrase like it it was a watershed for women in rock, but there was definitely a shift in terms of female artists, not having to be pop artists to be successful. Obviously, Lannis Morissette is like the, the, the key indicator of that having sold more records than just about any artist in the decade. And she wasn't a pop artist like, you know, Debbie Gibson or, or Tiffany or something along that. She was a legitimate you know, rock musician along those lines. When, when you brought up, uh, when you talk about Slater Kinney in the book, you talk about, you know, the press, which had an opportunity to sort of acclimate themselves to, you know, women being rock musicians, but there's still a sense of it being a, I don't know what the term, I'm blanking on the term, but being a novelty essentially that, you know, guys were expected to be in rock bands, but for some reason, even though there had been massive success, when Slater Candy broke through with this record, there was still like a kind of a disconnect between how they were being written about and what was the reality of like album sales essentially in the nineties.
2: No, you're you're absolutely right. And the press was super, super, super resistant to acknowledging, recognizing female musicians as rock stars, because this would have toppled, like, this hierarchy that they'd been creating, this hegemonic rock hierarchy that they have been creating, that they profited from for, certainly in the 90s, but for decades earlier, too, and the way they negotiate, later Kinney, is by saying, well, you know, they're good for a girl band, right, or they try to pigeonhole them either as women in rock, which is a category of itself that says women are not part of rock, right, they're not rock stars, they're women who are in rock. So it's a ca- category to marginalize them the other strategy was to pigeonhole them as riot girl performers and riot girl itself had Gone through a lot of uh, marginalization in the press. Um, I'm sure you guys remember this, um, you know, just from being around in the '90s. Not, Riot Girl was always in the, you know, in Time, in Newsweek, on 60 Minutes, as sort of this style movement, as opposed to an actual social movement. It was presented as something that girls did, who wore berets and baby doll dresses, as opposed to women who had something to say about domestic violence and rape, and women who had something to say about sexism and misogyny and racism. So they were marginalized and they were infantilized oftentimes. I mean, the press had a huge problem and actually arguably still does with recognizing women who are just rock musicians, not women in rock, but just rock musicians.
0: What is your take on the, and we talked about this in one of our roundtables a while back, there was a, a bit of a segregation that ultimately started to happen where there were quote-unquote girl bands and there was a girl, you know, music festival. It it kind of, while there were all these artists that were emerging who were female, there was definitely a, like, almost a split that occurred. And and sort of out of that, it almost seemed like rock music in general started to get a lot more aggressive. The shows became more about, like, um, mosh pits and very, like, Adrenaline, masculine-oriented. There, there was a maybe a bit of a instead of it ultimately kind of coming together into one thing. It sort of maybe split into more. What have you looked into that or thought about that as you explore this book and sort of look at it through the lens of the '90s? What was going on, particularly towards the middle and end of the decade, in regard to that?
2: No, that's 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 interesting. Um, you know, I, I will say that you know, that's not new that there's sort of uh, a masculine claim over rock or especially. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the late eighties, that's why riot girl even begins is because a lot of women feel marginalized from the mosh pit of the bands. They want to go see. Um, There's some really great documentaries out about uh, early riot girl where, um, sometimes you, there there's these interviews and the and women say, well, you know, my friend asked me to hold his coat while he went and moshed, right? Also, women sometimes didn't feel safe uh, in mosh pits. And so Riot Girl was a reaction to that. It was a reaction to, to sort of a pretty violent late 80s punk scene that, mm-hmm. by the way, you know, I don't want to just rat on. I mean, these these men had been left behind by a neoliberalist society, right? If you were a young man in the late 80s, you didn't have a lot to look up to, right? Especially if you were poor, if you were from a rural area. So Mm -hmm. there was anger there that was, you know, anger there for the right reasons, but it was displaced on women, women's bodies often. So Mm -hmm. Rival is sort of an attempt to create safe spaces and attempt to create safe spaces for women, right? At these shows. Um, And so by the late 90s, (laughs) Slater Kinney still have to do this. I mean, talking to the band and talking to some of their fans at the shows, not everyone felt safe. Um, sometimes they would have to do have to use these sort of guerrilla riot girl um, tactics where they would have to say, OK, girls, come to the front. Let's create sort of a protective here uh, guard against the mosh pit that is vi- that is." Possibly going to hurt one of us here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Rape still happen uh, at concerts today. Rape still happen at concerts in the '90s, especially the big festivals. Um, and sort of what you're what you're referring to is Lilith Fair, right? This the the sort of largely female driven yes. uh, festival, yeah. So Lilith Fair. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember this, but Lilith Fair forms because um, I think. Sarah McLachlan and somebody else wanted to go on tour, but they wouldn't. Nobody would book them as like mm-hmm. two female leads, and so they said, "Well, what if we just do our own festival?" And it was pretty successful. I mean, mm-hmm. Lilith Fair was a successful festival because there was an audience out there who wanted to go see female performers. Um, so I'm not sure if like there's a segregation because women obviously went to, you know, Ozfest or. What was the Olympus get to like Family Values tour or Warp tour, right? Like women went mm-hmm. to those tour, went to those concerts, but I'm not sure if there was sort of a heightened awareness of safety for women at those concerts.
1: Right, I think I think we're we were analyzing it from the festival perspective, whereas the early '90s, you kind of only had like Lollapalooza, which was a mixture of everything.
0: And it seemed very pure at that time in yeah. terms of, like, it was really everybody coming together the first couple times that happened. And then as the decade evolved and things kind of shifted back maybe to where they were, like you were describing in the 80s, where it was became, again, once more uh, more masculine-driven and, and oriented that way. And then it, to me, that's when it seemed like, okay, well, now there's this whole set of female artists, which are great, but we're calling them – girl bands or a yeah. women's festival. And it was and it was great and successful, but it was sort of um disappointing to see that there was a moment it seemed to be that we were just kind of coming together communally. The rock scene was making sense in terms of, you know, it being open for that the early nineties period um to kind of anybody. And then all of a sudden it started to fracture again and split towards the end of the decade.
2: <clears throat> I mean, it, and it's almost like women became a marketing tool, right? Yeah, right. It's almost like these these uh, these festivals developed like either genre or gender specific um, marketing uh, brands. So like you went to like the, the metal festival or you went to the women's festival,
1: right?
0: Yeah. Well, it's yeah, branding.
1: I mean, it's corporate branding yeah. and it's, you know, you probably had Ticketmaster behind that or, or some other you know management entity that was putting those things to. It's a lot easier to sell Warp tour where you're gonna have 40 you know punk rock and ska bands as opposed to explaining Lollapalooza in 1995 to people where you're gonna have a whole mixture of bands. You know you can get a, you can target your demographic a lot tighter and mm. uh, it probably makes it easier from a ticket sales perspective to do that. Cause I remember that Lollapalooza, I think Perry Farrell was pretty burnt out on Lollapalooza by the time, like the fourth or fifth one
0: mm. rolled
1: around. So right. that was, uh, it's probably, you know, corporate interest pushing that as much as, as anything, at least on like the, the warp tour, Ozfest, you know, that kind of, that end of it, or horde tour, all those things. Um, I want to get in a little bit into like the nuts and bolts of actually writing as someone who has, done written a submission myself i know that it can be time consuming
2: can you you tell us which one is that
1: Uh, oh well it did get picked up i I wrote for i wrote one on um fantastic planet by failure
2: okay cool
1: um that was last year actually and i need to tweak my my entry and work on the stuff that i i felt like it was a little weak but i wanted to know about um you know some of the tricky parts of, and anybody who wants to submit, and this is the the, the cool part about thirty three and a third, you go to their website, they have a list of what they're looking for in terms of your submission, and then you um, basically just write up a proposal and submit it, and then if they like it, you you're going to be writing a book. Okay. The tough parts are, um, you know, there's things that you can do like writing a chapter or describing what you're going to talk about and then there's things like describing your audience which become a little bit more tricky especially if you're not someone who is a you know a lot of people who submit to this are not professional writers there are some journalists and what have you but there's people who are academics there are people who are even just music fans that who have Mm -hmm. written and and gotten so how long did it take you to come up with your first draft of your submission? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, so this was, this. I mean, it's a lengthy, lengthy kind of um, project just from the beginning. Just the proposal itself took a long time. Not so much the writing itself, but actually the research and the prepping for the proposal. So once I picked an album, which was the hard, hard part, um, what I did is... I took out 20 books from the library, right? I took out 20 books that in some way, shape or form dealt with the early 90s, mid 90s, um, Riot Girl, uh, Punk, anything that dealt with um, sort of that moment in history of me, of uh, that scene, I started to read. So this is where um, I read, for example, Sarah Marcus's Girls to the Front. This is where I read a couple books uh, about the Ollie scene, about uh, K records. Um, and so this is how I kind of situated myself in the field. I figured out what people have been writing, what people haven't been writing. Um, this is how I figured out that in big retrospectives of women in music, Slater can hardly figure in for more than a line or two. Right? So this is where I figured out that it's really, uh, for example, um, Kathleen Hanna and that's sort of like early Uriah girl that gets covered. But then sort of the legacy of the Riot Grrrl movement, the, the bands and the musicians who came out of it don't necessarily get as much coverage. So this is this was the kind of a beginning point for me, figuring out what has been done and what I could possibly say. The second part for me that also took a bit of time just in terms of prep work, in terms of research, was finding what sources I could use to tell the story I wanted to say, want, want to tell or the story I thought I wanted to tell. So I looked up what kind of press um, I could get from my library, what kind of uh, periodicals, what kind of zines I could get from the library. Uh, and I looked up online what sort of fan communities exist, what sort of boards or websites or tumblers and, uh, today exist. And so that kind of gave me a good sense of where I could go with the project. And then actually sitting down and writing took um took a good month. Um, now, you know, I was in a pretty good position. I was between projects. I was between finishing my dissertation and my new job, so I had a little bit of cush time there to actually take a month to write. Uh, but I mean, you're right, right? R- writing two thousand words of a book that you have hardly, um, you know, researched is hard. Um, it's it's hard imagining who would actually pick up your book. It's hard imagining. What your tone will be, or what actually the argument of the book will be, uh, but you know you sort of give it your best shot, and that ends up changing. Um, for me, the proposal and the actual finished product is radically different. But I would say to do the proposal and to do it, you know, well, I would put aside a couple of months.
1: So when you're writing, and you, and you mentioned about you know sort of the it evolving as you're as you're writing it based on what you originally thought maybe it was going to be into what it ended up being are you are you basically after you get accepted as the they they basically list everybody who you know put a submission in and then they narrow it down to a specific amount i think you know like last year it was like you know they got like 400 and something entries or four or 500 entries and that got narrowed down to like 80 and then from that 80 they picked like whatever amount they were going to do um are you in constant contact with, are you submitting like drafts and whatnot, or do they like leave you alone to work on it, work on it, work on it, and then turn in your final, I guess, or not final, but your, your, what you think is your first final draft of it. What's that process like?
2: So, um, I will, I will say that this process has changed. Um, so I'll tell you what I did, but I'll tell you like sort of the, the way that the 33 is doing it now. Um, what happened for for me, was that you know say deadline is February fourth. You turn your uh, proposal in, and you don't hear from them until they call you and tell you your proposal has been submit your has been accepted. So essentially, I turned in my proposal by the due date. Um, I saw online it listed. Okay, great, they got it. Several months later, I saw that it passed the first stage, okay, great. I had no communication with anybody from 33 at this time. And then, uh, when they were narrowing it down for the final selection, uh, they called me and told me, your book is going to be accepted, you know, keep this tight until we actually announce it. So. That was the process, process they used before they had these big open calls. Now, if you want to submit a proposal to the 33, they have a rolling, uh, rolling acceptance rate. So that's that's essentially uh, that essentially means that when you have time to write a proposal and polish it out, and when you're ready, you send it to them, and they will review it as they receive them. So they, I don't think they do anymore the sort of big open call. Right, this the big year. cattle call. Yeah. Right, exactly, which which was which is really stressful, right? Because mm-hmm. you have this deadline that doesn't always work with your schedule. You know, some people who write like you guys work, some people who are academics are on a different kind of schedule, um, and you can't always meet the deadline, or it's not always convenient to meet the deadline in the middle of the winter or in the middle of the summer. But now the the way the process is. As you are actually uh, ready to submit it, you submit it and they have a panel uh, or I think a committee who reviews the proposals and awards pro- awards contracts um, as they choose. So I don't think that they have necessarily a limit to how many they award, but uh, that's just something you know to keep in mind that you don't have to necessarily work towards a deadline. You can work towards your own deadline now.
1: Okay. And then as you were actually writing it, are they staying in contact with you or do they just kind of leave you alone and wait for you to – you turn it in?
2: Well, I think that depends. Um, my editor was uh, was Ali Jing, uh, and she's no longer there. So I think it, it depends who who the editor is that you're working with. Gotcha. Uh, and I think it also depends on what you need as an author. So say that you're the kind of person who really likes to touch base with your editor once a month. I'm pretty sure that that's something that can, that can happen. Uh, but say that you're the kind of person who says, you know, in a year, I will have this project to you. Then I'm sure they will let you let you alone. I mean, I'm kind of a sort of work on your own kind of person. I mean, I'm an academic, right? I hang out in libraries and you know write all day long. That's it's kind of sort of like second nature to me. So that was easy for me to self motivate and to create a lot of um, kind of benchmarks for myself and little deadlines, uh, say every month or so to meet. But I know a lot of people who really benefit from having kind of like a tete-a-tete with your editor. So touch base to see how the argument is developing or to see if you need help with something or they can put you in contact with somebody. So that's a totally personal uh, ter- personal preference, I think, that you would develop through a relationship with the editor.
1: Now, you mentioned about research, but you also did interviews for this book. Yes. Um, how did you end up uh, hooking up with the members of uh, Slater-Kenny? Like, how, how right. did you get in contact with them?
2: So this is actually one of the most challenging things for me uh, with this book, because uh, I mentioned I'm a historian, right? So I'm used to working with dead people and dead people's diaries and, you know, things that happened 100 years ago. And so I never had necessarily to negotiate the, the access that you have to negotiate with living, breathing people who have busy schedules. Uh, so it took me a while to figure out, who actually to contact to reach the band, right? It's not they're they're famous enough now where you can't just you know tweet at them or like Facebook them. Right. Uh, so I had to find their publicist, and when I found her, their publicist, she was fantastic. I negotiated, sort of, uh, or rather, I scheduled interviews through her, uh, and then we had uh, Skype interviews with uh, with. Court uh, with Corin uh, and Janet. I did several Skype interviews with them. I also interviewed uh, the producer, uh, one of their roadies, uh, for the Dig Me Out tour, and so that was a lot of fun. That was that was sort of really getting to the source and being able to ask them questions about how they remember that time, uh, how they remember those concerts in particular, how they remember the press, how they remember. Uh, seeing that first big article in Time Magazine, which was their first mainstream article ever, uh, and how they responded to it. So that was really, really cool. Um, I, th- I think that helped a lot with the book. And I think their voices actually carry uh, a lot of the book, uh, a lot of the cool parts of the book at least.
1: And a part of the research that you did was going through the zine, uh, which was called – was it Hey, Mr. D- Mr. Sound Guy? Is that the title uh, of it? it-
2: Right, well, it's just, hey, sound guy. Hey, sound guy. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and that that, that, was, that was really neat. Um, it was taken sort of from a quote in the zine where Corinne is, uh, she, she's writing the zine on the Dig Me Out tour, and she's recording uh, interactions with all the sound engineers who she calls sound guys in the zine. Uh, and usually they're pretty resistant or sort of goofy. Uh, and so in one of the, one quote that she says, I think, probably directly to the sound guys. She says, hey, sound guy, we're the band, right? Listen to us, do what we want you to do. But sound guys are resistant to, to them. They're resistant often to, really, most musicians, right? You guys have been on tour. You, you know what, what it's like working with sort of the sound techs uh, at each venue, night in, night out. Um, it can be frustrating. And course later, Kinney was extra frustrating uh, because they felt that they were really gendering at each and every step of the way. So Corinne, in the zine has really interesting, uh, very interesting um, recollections about being having her voice turned down low or uh, having sound guys add special effects to make her voice sound more like, you know, Janet Jackson or more like Celine Dion. So they're trying to soften them up uh, a little bit. Uh, and when the band says, turn up <laughs> the sound, they don't want to turn it up right? Uh, because women are not supposed to play loud music. So that's kind of how she interprets the tour. And it was a really valuable source for me because this was something she created on tour. So this is essentially um, a primary source from that particular moment uh, that is super, super, super valuable for a historian who wants to think about how Corin actually experienced uh, these moments as opposed to how she remembers them 20 years later.
1: Now, is that something that's available online? Because uh, Columbus, Ohio gets mentioned in, in a venue, Little Brothers, that Jay and I are, are familiar with. It's oh. closed now, but um, oh. I'm particularly interested in reading that <laughs> that entry. Um,
2: well, um, you know... It's not online, and in general, like uh, what I found, just using these zines, and this is the first project I've used a lot of zines for. Um, what I found is a lot of zine writers specifically ask for their zines not to be digitized. Hmm. I guess zines are still very much thought of as kind of a DIY, you know, paper and ink kind of uh, kind of thing that you make and then distribute and mail to people. Uh, and so, a lot of zines, a lot of zines that are made today, for example, will say somewhere, "Do not digitize." But I got these zines from a, a really cool zine library in New York City in uh, Bard College, or yeah, Barnard, rather, in Barnard College, uh, and the librarian there, Jenna Friedman, helped me uh, dig up some of these zines and she helped me get my hands on them even though they're not digitized. Um, so I actually donated my copy of Dig Me Out to, to their library. So what you could do is you could request it and uh, they will send it to you on loan, or um, you could shoot me an email and I can help you out too. Oh,
1: okay, excellent. Yeah. I had no idea that there was a zine library. That's pretty cool. There-
2: yeah, there are several. There are several. Um, so, like, let's see. You guys are in in Austin and in in
1: Columbus, Ohio.
2: In Columbus. Um, hmm. So in Cleveland, I bet the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has some on hold, but not many. But the good ones are. There's a really good one at in Duke at Duke University. Hmm, okay. Uh, the one at. And uh, the one at uh, Barnard is awesome, really great. Specializes really sort of like early '90s, and then there's a great one also at Smith College in Massachusetts. Uh, so those are the three that um, sort of I would encourage you to poke around. But seriously, Google Google it, zine library, and you'll find lots of little tiny tiny libraries where uh, there are small collections, but they're so fun. You know, if if you read zines ever in in the '80s or '90s. Uh, you know that they were sometimes your only lifeline, right, or your only alternative to like Spin and Rolling Stone, right? Uh, you know, reading them now is it's 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 also really fun um, to think about zines as somebody who is 20 years older, right? And I'm looking at them in a different way and they're really great. They're really exciting as a source. They're excellent. Uh, And you see how thoughtful some of these young fans were and how much they engaged with not only the bands or the music, but the world really that this band and this music existed in.
1: One of the questions that I uh, sent you was about, uh, it's something that's brought up in the book. It's regarding um, the idea of selling out and Mm -hmm. this weird... Uh, notion that um, because Dig Me Out and Slater Kenny kind of got to another level of commercial or or mainstream uh, visibility that they were actually tagged by some of the people who had you know been with them up to that point or or had been fans up to that point as somehow being a sellout because they appeared on you know this magazine cover or their song was on this you know whatever and uh, does that kind of strike you as as sort of ridiculous now that a whole concept of like selling out in terms of like now bands just to be able to be a band they have to figure out a way to like monetize you know they're not going to do it through album sales so they have to you know an indie band's got to like put a song in a Ford commercial or, or something along those lines. Did that did going back and in, in revisiting that aspect sort of strike you as kind of antiquated?
2: I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know antiquated. I'm not sure if antiquated is the right word. I mean, because have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like... Your favorite band sold out because all of a sudden they're popular, right? It's 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 not something bands do. It's it's something that fans do to them, right? It's fans accuse bands of selling out. Right. Um And Slater Slater Kinney fans, you know, totally did because the way that I understood what selling out is much better as you know as as um, as I was writing is uh when i read this great article by sarah thornton which she says that selling out is the process by which you sell to outsiders right and so it's 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 people feel that they lose a sense of possession or they feel like they lose Mm -hmm. a sense of exclusive ownership of their band when somebody else or the nation right when the u.s as a whole has access to this band that they thought was only theirs so i don't know if it's antiquated I i think it's a feeling fans have and i think it's a natural feeling to have when you love a band and you, you think it's a band that you and 20 other people watched play for two years and then all of a sudden, you know, they're featured in, you know, Rolling Stone. It, you, it feels, a you feel a sense of loss, right? I mean, do you guys feel that? Is this, is this something that you have felt in the past?
0: I, I have, I think that when it turns the corner and maybe I take, I would take issue with the term selling out because I definitely have felt uh, that when more people um, become familiar with the band, then suddenly I start to lose my sort of ownership of it, which right. some of the luster and just, I don't know, the, the magic around that, whatever that is, goes away. Right. Now, I think when bands actively maybe cater to that new audience over their core fans, to me, right. that's when they turn the corner to a sellout. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of bands maybe get that label and they're not actually turning that corner um so it's right. i see it as kind of two different things
2: yeah yeah I, I see what you're saying no i see what you're saying so going maybe like so like if Pugazi all of a sudden was recording uh commercials for cigarettes that would be selling out because right, they spent yeah. 20 years you know going straight edge
0: right or they do um say they do a new record that gets picked up by radio and they go out and tour and they only really focus on those songs and they forget the like three albums of you know more uh you know maybe difficult music or less popular music that their core fans love but they've got these new fans now so this is what they're doing now and they're going to cater to them
2: and they're charging you know five dollars as opposed to five dollars per
0: head right <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing i i, I
2: mean, hear you no, I, I see what you're saying
1: Um, let's see go through my questions here so one of the uh the interesting things in in reading the book is we have now the perspective obviously of of time and the band got back together in 2015 which i don't think anybody was really expecting that there's obviously been a rash of 90s bands getting back together which the pixies or dinosaur jr or or, you know all sorts of bands from the 90s have gotten back together but yeah but the the slater candy one was kind of dropped out of nowhere like we knew there was like a box set coming and then all of a sudden oh by the way there's a new album that's going along it's gonna be coming out it was 10 years from the previous record and it seemed like at that point when the new album came out which was 2015 no cities to love that the press that had sort of like looked at this band with like a weird kind of like side eye like well there's no bass so that's weird and it's all women and it's kind of aggressive and it's shouty those things had now become almost like these are respected this is a respected Ooh. band now like Can now I... these are people to be honored did you in in terms of seeing that reaction um, like them playing on Letterman, <laughs> like that sort of thing, uh, right. C- c- right. sort of take you by surprise.
2: No, I mean you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I was I was surprised that all of a sudden it's critical acclaim across the board. Right, they're getting profiled in New York Times style section. I mean, this is this is big stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They're totally loved by everybody. Not you could not find a single crit- critical word. You know, there's still some. I think some journalists who maybe didn't write. Um, about Slater-Kinney as rock stars as much as they could, wrote about them as female rock stars. But that aside, I agree with you. It, it, it's a totally different kind of scene uh, in journalism and also among fans. And I think several things played into that. Uh, one, Um, I think Slater Kinney had built up this really devoted fan base who continued to be really supportive of them. So through word of mouth, through touring, through these underground networks in the 90s, not actually so much through radio play or through that much mainstream coverage in the 90s, they built up these sort of loyal fans who in 2015 are 10, 15 years older, right? They're adults. They're people who expect their favorite bands to be in the New York Times. But then also, here's the other thing. Each of those uh, musicians, all three of them were active as musicians. In case of Carrie Brownstein, she's an actress. So they stayed present in the public's mind. They, over time, I think, gained a lot of credibility in the press's mind. And so by the time that Slater Kinney um, returns from hiatus, um, they have... uh, a huge fan base to begin with. And I think they've already kind of proven themselves uh, in the eyes uh, of the press. Um, That's kind of how I read that, that kind of very, 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 very positive um, acclaim after uh, they returned from their hiatus. Um, But, you know, I'd love to think also that the media had changed, but I'm not sure if that's the case.
0: Do you think there's anything to the possibility that maybe also they – had influenced um, enough bands or just what they were doing had become um, – or bands similar to them from that era um, had become so influential that you started to hear uh, in, in, in newer bands um, maybe some of that same uh, – some of those same concepts and sounds. So I, I guess my question is, does what they do suddenly make more sense now hmm. with – with, yeah, with more time.
2: That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. What do you guys think?
0: I think the new record sounds very... I, I think it fits with a lot more bands now, in a weird way. Yeah. It yeah. definitely sounds like them, but when I hear it, I'm like, oh, this reminds me of Gossip. Mm, or, yeah. you know, I, I hear all these other bands that suddenly right. now, with some time, they seem to have... Um, Arrived in a sp- space where now they have contemporaries, yes, um, really interesting. that they're familiar with,
1: yeah, they're sort of playing with or or in the in they're in the same time frame of the bands that they influenced and yeah. that sort of you know, and we're gonna get into describing music here, but that like <laughs> jagged guitar, twin guitar <laughs> attack where you hear, you know, when you listen to like on headphones, you're hearing one guitar in one ear and one yep. guitar in the other ear and they're doing two different things. They're not playing blues scales. I mean, they're playing a very aggressive post-rock sound that if you look at like the early 2000s to now, those are that's that's a pretty popular approach to guitar. When you look at like the the early 2000s with the with um the wave of bands like Block Party or The Rapture or, yeah. right. you know, those yeah. bands were were using that sort of jagged, you know, Gang of Four from the 70s and, and Wire and those sorts of bands were obvious influences. But, you know, Slater-Kinney, that attack that they have with their guitar, with the aggressiveness of the vocals, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's male or female. I mean, I hear in Slater-Kinney what I hear in, like, At the Drive-In. That's a very... Oh, oh.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah I band. totally see what you guys are saying. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting, because those bands are sort of mid-2000s, right? Yeah. So, like, I listened to The Rapture, Drive-In, like, 2002, 2003, right? That's mm-hmm. definitely, you know, five, six years after Dig Me Out comes out. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. So, what you're saying is that Slater-Kinney had essentially, or The Times had actually caught up with Slater-Kinney.
0: Basically, yes. yeah. yeah. I feel that way. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's yeah, that's really interesting. I I I I totally can see that.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely had a reaction of with time, you know, when I listened to this yeah. f- to dig me out in the late nineties, you know, it was mm, it seemed way different and at times abrasive, but when I heard the new record, I'm like, oh, this totally makes sense. Right. And yeah, right. I think they're very similar. I just think I've been conditioned to understand you know that type of music better at this point. So.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. I I totally see what you're saying. Um so in in a way w- w- what we're seeing is that they were they were a little ahead of their time and that we appreciate them more now with
1: 10-15 years
2: foresight, right? I
1: think, I think so, that's yeah. happened to a lot of bands in the 90s whether they were an underground band, you know, a a zine band, a a band that didn't get on the radio um, than with some of the more popular bands because a lot of the bands were doing things on the under, the reason why they weren't getting signed to major labels or they weren't being successful on major labels because they're doing stuff that was so outside of what was kind of acceptable for radio. I'm thinking of like, you know, Dinosaur Jr. broke, you know, had one song essentially that got them a radio because it had a, a video that went along with it. And then they, you know, broke up, were apart for 10 years or so. Now, they're kind of in the same boat like with Slater-Kinney where like people have caught up to Jay Mastis as being a an you know, incredible guitar player, but also that that band is influencing dozens of bands that exist now. Whereas his sort of approach that you know messy neil young sort of guitar style kind of put off people i think a lot in the 90s there's other bands we could talk about that have gone through the same thing where i think the the distance and the also the going away for a little while and not having that band around and then having them come back makes you appreciate them more as opposed to you know a band that sticks around or or and releases
2: like five shitty albums in the meantime exactly
1: you know,
0: Especially
2: nobody's pumpkins. Gonna, what? Oh, go ahead. I was pumpkins. You guys pumpkins. pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those guys have definitely
0: aged. Yeah, and if they uh, to to the point of you know they never he they kind of went away, but he's always tried to keep that band alive. And if they end up doing the reunion like so many '90s bands are doing with the original lineup, does that mean as much? You know, being that they never went away, they were just different members. And is it as meaningful when you, at that point, you know, try to put the original people back in, whereas if they would just would have completely went away for 10 years and then came back with the original lineup, it just has so much more impact.
2: Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. And in general, you know, these reunion tours are anticlimactic, especially if the person has been releasing albums. I just saw um, Marilyn Manson. Mm-hmm. And it was thoroughly anticlimactic, right? Because mm. who's been listening the last 15 years? I haven't, but mm-hmm. right. For Slater Kinney, they didn't have that crappy period. In fact, all the band, all the members, were part of other bands. Creative juices flowing in different ways. I mean, I I think they took a hiatus for a really good reason. Is that they were stalling as a band, right? As mm-hmm. a threesome, and they pursued other um, paths. Came back together and. Found themselves again in that kind of creative, creative intersection, which which is better than doing the opposite, right? Doing the Billy Corgan or doing the Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson or something like that.
0: Sure. You mentioned that your original draft and what you ultimately uh, published were pretty different. What were some of the things as you were working with your editor and trying to get to the to the heart of the story you wanted to tell? Were there some things that you really just fought? letting go whether internally or with your editor that you just had a really hard time um kind of kind of editing out or or pivoting on
2: well you know the the, when you write this proposal you sort of imagine your dream book right Mm -hmm. and so i i imagined a dream book i created sort of this dream argument uh and i thought i was going to be telling the story of how Raya Girl was so so influential for Slater Kinney, and how Raya Girl continues to be influential in in the future, right? that was kind of the sort of imaginary story I was going to tell. But the thing is when I actually started researching and I started talking to the band and I started reading the zines and I started reading the periodicals from on um, ni- the mid nineties, I realized that there was a different story in those sources. And so actually what I had to fight was my own preconceived notion of what the book would be and actually what the sources told me. Cause when I read the, um, when I read uh, the zines, I didn't find people dwelling on Riot Girl. I found people dwelling on Slater Kinney. They didn't think of them as a Riot Girl band. On the contrary, even Slater Kinney didn't think of themselves as a Riot Girl band. So I really had to let go of this sort of continuity. I had to let go of this notion that there is some linear story to be told here. And I had to think about Slater Kinney as a band who exists on its own, in its own historical moment, in its own historical flow. Um, and then, you know, the cool thing about the 33s is that you can pretty much do anything with it. So my editor was never really pushing me either one way or the other. Um, if you guys have read other uh, other uh, books in the series, you know that there are uh, authors who approach their, their album through a fictional account. Some do, you know, a track-by-track analysis. Uh, every song is... Uh, it has an entire chapter devoted to it. Other people approach it from a, um, more of a sociological perspective. Um, some people who are musicians write more about the sound and sort of like the the recording process. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I chose this historical uh, historical approach because that's what I'm good at. Uh, and the urge I had to fight was to sort of get over my assumptions of what I would find and actually listen to what I did find.
1: Well, thank goodness you did, because the book is very entertaining in, in the sense that you get a perspective of the world around them. It wasn't like I, I've read probably 20 different books in the series, right. and a lot of times people miss what like what is actually going on. They right. like You mentioned about the track by track, which is great. I, I liked some of those books, but... You know, there's so many things that influence what a band and what a you know a time period is you know floating around the band as they're making their record that it, uh, it you can kind of miss some of the perspective. like the there's the one book on James Brown's Live at the Apollo, which is excellent because it's also told from where he was in his career, which was actually down at that point right. and it's also told from the social upheaval that was going on right. in the United States at that time so it's it's a really fascinating book because it's not only about him the the country sort of teetering on the edge of falling apart through social upheaval but it's also his career is kind of at its you know turning point there he's either going to this album's going to do well or he's going to kind of go away he had had right. his hit singles and that was you would kind of been thought of as, like, over the hill at that point, even though he was, I don't even think he was 30 at that point, which is crazy to right. think about. But
2: I know, right? Yeah. Well, no, I, I know what you mean. I mean, the way I thought about this book and the way I think in general about what I do as a historian is I want to give my readers the tools to understand, for example, this album, and then I want them to listen to it and interpreted on their own, right? There's nothing that I can say about the songs that will make you get the songs more, right? You you have to do that on your own. It's it's like um, you want a good art critic to tell you sort of as much as they can about this piece of art and then you look at it You have to look at it. So you have to listen to the album You have to listen to dig me out and you have to listen to the songs and you have to sort of analyze them uh, on your own terms and you know, I think some people do a really great job of the track-by-track. I just read the book by uh, on Devo on Freedom of Choice, which does which integrates really well the track-by-track track analysis in each of the chapters. Uh, but, you know, for me, it was more interesting to dwell on this period, to dwell on the whys of, of the mid-'90s. And, you know, I was probably driven by the same questions you guys are driven to do this podcast 300 times so far, right? <laughs> This sort of having lived through the nineties and not having fully understood it. So thinking of it, thinking through it is uh it, it's exciting, right? Because you feel like you understand perspective, um you, you understand the nineties from a different perspective. And that's a perspective certainly of time, but also of your own um, of your own change over time.
1: Well, that's a good um, you know, circle back to the beginning. Um, since we're about to hit the hour mark here, this is probably a good spot for us to To hit on a um last question which is this is the i think this is like the typical when you're asked when you're speaking with a writer if you have advice for writers who are going to submit to 30 and 33 and a third for the first time uh what would what kind of advice would you give them
2: sure uh so you know one thing i will say is that this is such a fun project to do um it's Kind of an intense project to do so um while it's fun and it's a lot of fun to do a lot of fun to talk about people are always very interested to talk about it um it's a project you really have to budget your time for so my contract was a 12 month deadline so and i didn't want to you know extend it for three more years so i really wanted to stay on schedule and what i would say is when you submit your proposal be ready for uh, kind of an intense project that's going to begin and it's going to end in you know say twelve months or say sixteen months, uh, but make a schedule. I think creating a work schedule is super duper important. Um, I started by dividing my time to re- in research and then writing, and then I'd subdivided the writing stages, so allotting one month of writing and revising for each chapter or something like that. Um, I would say that that is really important um is to sort of have a chunk of time that you know you'll be able to devote consistent work time to the project and also to have an open mind about what you expect to write and what you actually end up finding and uh and writing about so for me like I mentioned to you guys before it was it was hard to sort of get over my own expectations my own hypotheses and to actually get to writing what I actually saw before me and so when I when I when I bridged that, uh, when I, or I guess got over that barrier, uh, the book started really flowing because I was letting the voices carry the book. I was letting the band members, uh, the zine writers, even the journalists carry a lot of the story. Uh, and so it, it, there was like kind of let, letting go of my preconceived notions and what the book actually was going to turn out to be. Not to say that I'm not an agent of the book. I am, but, um, I think, Sometimes uh, realizing that you were wrong or realizing that you were not perfectly right in the proposal is okay, too. Uh, but I certainly encourage everybody uh, who's thinking about this uh, to you know, throw out an application. It's a totally fun project. It's not going to bring you riches, uh, but it will bring <laughs> you a, a sliver of fame.
1: Excellent. Jay, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Uh,
0: no, I think this has been... A really, really uh, interesting conversation. I think for us, it's um, it. I relate a lot with what you're saying because this podcast has, has been a journey, I think, for Tim and I to um, kind of dive deep on the decade, and to your point, not fully understanding it. But as we review the, all these records and we do have conversations and have interviews, these themes start to appear about... You know, things that were going on that we didn't even realize in the decade and consistencies and patterns. And so I think uh, it's been a lot of fun to to kind of hear how you go about, um, you know, looking at those things as a professional, but then also in the context of music and, uh, you know, pulling all that pulling all that out and trying to make sense of the past.
2: Yeah, that's that's sort of the the eternal thing that we have to keep doing, right? Because making sense of the past today will not make sense tomorrow or in 20 years. So it's also, you know, history is an active living agent. So telling Slater-Kinney's history today is not necessarily telling their history for eternity. And same goes for the 90s, right? Sort of mm-hmm. in reinterpreting the 90s now is so much different than when we, were, when we were actually going to these shows and listening to these bands. It's so much different now. And I think what you guys are doing is really, really cool. And I wish you 300 more. <laughs> Thank
1: so. you. Thanks. Uh, I don't know if I got it in me, Jade. You got it in you? <laughs> <laughs> i'll keep showing up that's okay i can tell you I'll, I'll, i will as well i want right. to direct everybody to a couple of websites number one you can check out uh the 33 and a third series where you can go purchase the books or find out where you can purchase the books at 333 sound.com that's where you can learn about all the previous titles all the coming titles if you want to write a book you can find out how to do so with their um section on how to write a uh, how to submit a proposal lots of good information there they actually have a book about how to write a book for the series so i would suggest picking that up also want to direct people to your website yovana that's just your name yovana yeah, Babovich. Yeah. Com.
2: yes yes so maybe you can link it uh, maybe that will be easier
1: yep i will do so oh, yeah i'll put that on our show notes Thank you for coming on. Thanks for spending your Thanks Wednesday stuff. evening with us.
2: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. It was great to chat with you guys.
1: And us as well. Everybody, go out, go get the book, uh, Dig Me Out. And you should probably also go get the album as well. That'd probably be a, a yes, good, good
2: companion. Yeah. Good,
1: com- good companion to that if you're, if you're not already familiar with it. And uh, that's it. Number 300 is in the books, folks. There's uh, 300 more.
0: Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.